Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown. Today I'll be talking with the authors of The Positive Case for Negative Campaigning, published 2014 by University of Chicago Press. The authors are Kyle Matz and David Redlosk. I hope that you enjoy this interview that I did with them. Welcome back to the podcast. Again, I have the pleasure to talk with the two authors of The Positive Case for Negative Campaigning, Kyle Matz and Dave, uh, David Redlosk. Uh, Dave, how are you doing today? I'm doing okay. Thanks, Heath. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you on. Kyle as well. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks. Yeah, maybe, Kyle, we can just start briefly with you as the, the lead author. Tell us just a little bit about yourself. Where have you been? Where you are now? Where will you be in the future? All right. Uh, I am, or, or will be, in, um, in the fall at Florida International University, um, formerly at the University of Iowa, a PhD from Caltech in 2008. Uh, and I... I mean, I'm interested in and studying political psychology, voting, uh, and campaign behavior. Um, and also, as you might be able to tell from the book, have interest in formal theory as well. Yeah, wonderful. And, and Dave, how about yourself? Just give us a little sense of your affiliations. Sure, you bet. I'm a professor of political science at Rutgers University in New Brunswick, New Jersey. I also direct the Eagleton Center for Public Interest Polling here at Rutgers. Uh, I was previously at the University of Iowa for about a decade, and uh, before that, took my PhD at Rutgers. So in coming back here, I sort of came back home. One other uh, little thing I'll add is that um, my interest in negative campaigning is not entirely theoretical. I I have some uh, experience as a a politician. I consider myself now a recovering politician. Mm -hmm. But I have done campaigns. I've uh, won and lost, and I've been the... uh, but of negative charges and have done some myself. Well, this is, uh, you know, only adds to your credentials uh, and and, uh, really does shape uh, what is such an interesting book. Um, Let's get started talking about it. Um, What what makes this book fun, I think, is that you take this near universal notion about negative advertising and sort of turn it on its head. So, Kyle, let's start with just some simple notions, and that is, what is a negative campaign ad? And, and I wonder if, if you could talk a little bit about some of the differences that political scientists have from the general public in defining this term. Okay, good question. The, uh, the public, right, when they think about negative campaigning, if I asked you about negative campaigning, what I would imagine would come, to your, come into your mind would be the worst negative ad that you have ever seen. Uh, and you know, we have a couple of examples in our book. Um, you know, the Willie Horton ads might come to mind. Um, maybe the Swift Butts ads come to mind, right? You know, just the the worst mudslinging you know, imaginable. Um, and in political science, we measure it a little bit differently. Uh, and you know, part of the reason for doing that is that it becomes much easier to classify negative and positive by doing this. Um, and what they do, uh, or what we do, uh, is if um, an ad talks about an opponent, we classify it as negative if not classified as positive, 
Um, there are some cases where we consider, you know, a contrast ad, but really um, a contrast is, you know, both a positive and a negative component in the same ad. Um, so that, that's the starting point. And if you categorize ads in this way, you'll see that, you know, something like over 90% of the ads in a lot of cases are negative because, you know, very often politicians like to talk about their opponents. Right. Now, Dave, how does this difference that, that Kyle describes, this difference in definition, relate to some of the misunderstandings in the research about advertising in the public? Um, I mean, in, in essence, why does this matter? Well, it, it matters because we start with the assumption that uh, uh, nobody likes negativity. Uh, it, it, it creates this it creates this interesting paradox. Campaigns are about winning. Presumably, they do whatever they think it takes to win, and they abandon whatever doesn't help them win. Uh, on the other hand, any polling that's been done on negativity finds that virtually everybody hates negative ads. So the interesting problem is why do campaigns keep doing them if the very people that are reliant on voters tell us they hate them? And, and the answer seems to, to have something to do with this definitional issue. In, in, a, in a big way, if you ask people if they like something that's negative, they will tell you they don't. On the other hand, if we ask people whether they find value in learning about opponents, that is in a candidate talking about his opponent, contrasting him, uh, talking about the issues and so on and so forth, we find that in fact not only do they support that idea that they should learn, but we find through Kyle's, I think, just really, really interesting formal models that it's absolutely necessary. Right. So, so you try to refine this idea by setting up a, a series of experiments, um, and, and they stretch throughout the book. Let's first just talk about some of the experiments in Chapter 3. So, Kyle, how did you set up these experiments, and uh, what did you find out about, about how your subjects responded to the experiment? We set up the experiment. Uh, with a very simple idea, All right. and that idea, which Dave was uh, mentioning a bit already, is that you know when when we look at other polls um, uh, and voters are asked their opinion of negative campaigning, they say, "Well, we hate negative campaigning," um, and we notice that in all of those polls, they were asked about attacks or about something negative. And to our minds, we said, "Well, you know, if you ask somebody if they..." hate something that you term negative for them, you've already given them the value judgment, um, you know, they're probably not going to like it very much, right? Because, you know, is this thing that's bad? Is it, right? This thing that's bad, is it bad? Um, and, you know, they'll say yes. All right, so what we did is we decided that um, to set up the first experiment, what we wanted to do um, is ask people more about the action of negative campaigning, which is talking about the opponent, uh, or, you know, we're talking about what the opponent had done in office. And so we asked one group of people how they would feel about ads, uh, about, you know, to talk about what a candidate had done, an opponent, opposing candidate had done while in office. We asked another group the same question, but we added the words negative campaigning in it. Right? And what we found is that when we told them explicitly that it was negative, then they were very upset about the information. It angered them. Um, but if we failed to tell them that this was negative campaigning, they were very open to the idea of candidates talking about their opponents. Now, now in Chapter 4, you go a step further by experimenting with some real-world advertisements rather than just setting this up with a, with a 
uh, information provided, you're actually showing them some real-world ads. So which cam- campaign ads did you show your subjects, and, and what did you find about the reaction to these negative advertisements in, the, in a way that's different than what you found in the previous chapter? Let me, there's Dave here. I think that basically the, the ads that we showed were a selection of both negative and positive ads uh, taken from real campaigns, but at the subnational level, uh, including at least one at a state legislative level. The idea, of course, was that most of our respondents might not have actually experienced them personally. So these included ads, I think the, the ones that jump out the most and people who saw them were the most negative about them, were some religious attacks. There was a um, uh, Elizabeth Dole for Senate ad in which she claimed that uh, that her opponent, was uh, Kay Hagan, was essentially an atheist. She ran this ad about atheists supporting Hagan, that Hagan said there is no God. Um, Hagan responded by attacking Dole for the ad, but it's one of those great examples of of negativity that really goes off the deep end. And what we find in the study is that voters differentiate. They take a look at negativity that we would say is not defamatory. It's about issues. It's about experience, things like that. And they say, yeah, that we we're okay because we learned something from that. But negativity that goes into the realm of defamatory personal attacks, things like religion or a candidate's family, um, is an entirely different story. And the important thing here is that voters recognize and understand the differences and respond accordingly. Now, Kyle, towards the end of the book, you move from negativity to to lying. Um, What did you learn about voter responses to candidate lying in in this, this last piece of the analysis? Well, as you might guess, they're not big fans of it. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, in the Dole ad that Dave just mentioned, um, at the very end of the ad, um, there was a voice saying there is no God, and purportedly this voice was to be Kay Hagan. Um, it wasn't Kay Hagan. Um, in her response ad, she specifically said that they used a voice, you know, pretending that it was me, and you know, it wasn't me. Um, so. Voters don't look very highly on this, uh, right? Um, you know, online, obviously. Um, the th- point we wanted to make in well, chapter six and seven is that, right? On one hand, well, first of all, this ma- like the believability of these ads and the credibility of the ads matters more in a lot of ways to voters um, you know, when they're, you know, or I guess when we're talking about backlash, right? Um, if the ads are believable and credible and about uh, you know, things that are important to voters, then fine. Uh, if they're negative ads or lies, then you know, not, not so fine. Um, but what we found out that's particularly interesting in Chapter 7 is that just the idea that candidates might lie um, does affect decision-making processes. Um, so voters are perhaps maybe too concerned uh, about whether candidates are telling the truth, not that they shouldn't be concerned, but that it, just, that it really does affect their ability to make good decisions, and process the information that is given to them by the negative campaigns. Um, so, you know, obviously the candidates are going to be biased, but right, and we expect that, and that's fine. Um, you know, but as long as they're actually making a point and it's, you know, somewhat truthful, we just don't really see, you know, too much of a problem with, with negative ads. Let me, let me add in here real quick that the, um, the other interesting thing in those, in those experimental tests of the formal model is that the candidate's behavior 
appears to recognize that voters are sort of cons- overly concerned about lying. And it did seem to temper the behavior of the candidates as well. So, you know, the big picture here, I think, is really important, which is negative ads provide information. It's information that is important to the environment. If the information is not available, there's no substitute for it. And voters become less well-informed. In a sense, they become less well-informed because as people, we're really bad at um, doing what Sherlock Holmes did brilliantly in one of his stories, which one of the stories about him, which was recognize the importance of the dog that doesn't bark. You know, in the story, there's a break into a home and Holmes realizes that the intruder must have been known because the dog didn't bark in the middle of the night. Well, our voters aren't very good at that. If they aren't provided with the information, they don't seem to be able to infer it. Right. Now, now Dave, I wonder if you could just put your um, former candidate hat on. And you, you, have a, you, know, you have a career ahead of you. You could run for office again. You don't have to tell us that. But I wonder, as a candidate, what you would do with the, with the information in this book. Are there things that would have uh, won that election that, that you lost in the past? If you had only known a bit uh, of the social science research that uh, you have discovered in, in this book, um, uh, shift gears in that way for us, if you might. So, so let me start by making really clear that in my uh, current role as the head of a, a public opinion center, I am strictly nonpartisan and nonpolitical mm-hmm. myself. Um, it gives me great freedom to comment on what's going on in politics these days. Right. But I do have a past, and and um, in that past, I ran for office at the local level. I lost and won elections. Um, and I should note that almost right out of the gate, I used some negativity, and I used it because I was a challenger. I was running against incumbent, and it's clear to me that a challenger has two really important tasks. I think we tend to to forget this, which is the first is to convince voters not to do what they've already done, that is vote for the incumbent. And that task, I think, requires negativity. It requires you to to attack and, and attack in reasonable ways. The second task, of course, is to convince voters that you're the alternative, and that requires a certain amount of positivity. It requires a certain amount of vision and information voters voters want, um, whether you're talking local politics or national politics. But I think the big lesson I would take away from this from a practical standpoint is firstly not to be afraid to go negative, um, but to be very careful about how you go negative. It's, it's quite clear in this study that some topics really do anger voters and are really off, you know, out of bounds. Other topics, on the other hand, about your opponent, about how your opponent has voted, about the issues, about the experience. You know, these are all fair game and, and voters need to learn it. And no, I should no, add, too, to that, please. Uh, that um, in general, candidates seem to be quite aware of this, you know, the fact that certain topics matter and others don't. Uh, we had a very difficult time finding ads that attacked an opponent's religion. Uh, and the two that Dave mentioned were pretty much the only ones that we found. And we could not find an ad in which an opponent attacked another's family member. Uh, and if you remember a couple of the instances, for, such as like with Sarah Palin's daughters uh, and, and with Ann Romney, that when you know, 
zealous Obama staffers um, you know, started attacking them that the campaign itself said, no, no, stop. We really don't want you to do this. Um, and our book shows why you wouldn't want them to do that. Really, it's not a good, it's not a good angle, and candidates know that, and they don't do it. Um, you know, so they're neg- for the most part, they know, you know to choose negative campaigns that will not um, elicit this kind of backlash. But we, we could also point out that this was not always Usually, the case, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Particularly historically, they're, they're, politics, as much as people worry about it and talk about the negativity, politics was much more personal uh, in many ways in, in the past. I mean, when, oh, yes. when, when John Adams was running for re-election in, in 1800, he was called a hideous hermaphroditical character, which has neither the force and firmness of a man nor the gentleness and sensibility of a woman by Thomas Jefferson's campaign supporters. But they, you know, the, the Adams people said, well, murder, robbery, rape, adultery, and incest will all be openly taught and practiced. And the air rent with the cries of the distressed if Jefferson were to win. So, you know, in some ways, it's not quite as personal most of the time. And, and the evidence in the book is why. Yeah, and uh, I can't think of a, a more positive way to go out on a real positive statement about uh, the contemporary state of uh, our, our uh, campaign ads and, and also, uh, you know, such a historical uh, context as well. Uh, your book, The Positive Case for Negative Campaigning, published by University of Chicago Press in 2014, widely available. Kyle and Dave, thank you both for your time today. 